Hi, interns, and welcome back. I hope that you guys all had an amazing holiday season, regardless of what you celebrate. I know that it was super chaotic here, and it was really nice to have a little break to spend focusing on the family. But we are back, and today's episode toes a bit of a line between misdiagnosis and malpractice. Well, at the root, our patient today was misdiagnosed. There is also an undercurrent of negligence, though I don't feel it was intentional enough to really declare this episode a malpractice. But I'll let you decide for yourselves. Welcome to the Miss Medical Podcast, Diagnosis Flatline. I'm your host, Destry Godwin. Miss Medical explores stories of misdiagnosis, malpractice, mysteries, and misogyny. You're my interns, and this is where true crime and medicine collide. This is Miss Medical. We're heading back across the pond today to Devon, England, a port city in southwest England known for its maritime heritage and quaint cobbled streets. It's also apparently home to the oldest gin distillery in England, which is a random yet interesting fact. Knowing that it's a port city, it makes sense that we meet David Hume there, who had formerly been a Royal Navy serviceman for 14 years. But we're not meeting him back in those days. We're meeting him in the spring of 2020, when he was a 47-year-old husband and dad of two. He was married to Sarah, and they had been together for 19 years pretty impressive. They had two children together, Kieran, who was 19, and Joe, who was 13. Sarah also had children from a previous relationship, so they certainly were a busy family, but also full of love. David had wanted to branch out and create something of his own after leaving the Navy. And in 2020, he was working as a director for a network cabling company. He wanted to create a legacy that would give his children a place for secure employment when they got older, should they so choose, of course, and lay that foundation for generational stability. David was generally a healthy and active person. I'm sure there was a lot of influence there from his history in the Navy and probably from raising teenage boys. He didn't have perfect health, though, although really, who does? In 2014, 
he had been diagnosed with sarcoidosis. Now, don't worry if you don't know what that is, because I'm going to break it down for you. Sarcoidosis is a fairly rare disorder, and while it has been known to run in families, we aren't actually sure the cause of it. It seems some people can genetically be more likely to develop it, but a large amount of people will still develop it anyway with no genetic link or family history. Since it is autoimmune in nature, there are theories that various bacterial or even viral infections might trigger it. Sarcoidosis causes the immune system to kick into high gear, which is a common hallmark of autoimmune disorders, and you produce clusters of inflamed tissue, which medically are referred to as granulomas. These can form in many organs within the body, but the lungs and the lymph nodes are the most common places that you would find them. These granulomas are made up of inflammatory cells, which, of course, leads to inflammation. Symptoms-wise, it's not always the easiest disease to pinpoint, because many people actually have no symptoms, or symptoms that seem to appear in waves during a flare-up. And the symptoms that do show up aren't exactly waving a sarcoidosis flag. Commonly, people will experience fatigue, swollen lymph nodes, weight loss, and pain or swelling in the joints. Now, pause this for just a second and think of every other disease, virus, or condition that may cause these symptoms. I'm not going to hold my breath because the list is long. There are more localized symptoms, such as for patients with sarcoidosis primarily in the lungs, might also have a persistent dry cough or shortness of breath and wheezing. It can also cause skin rashes, like red or reddish-purple little bumps, uh, skin lesions, discolored areas of the skin, or nodules, which are kind of just little growths under the skin. Sarcoidosis on its own is not generally a life-threatening illness, as the real risk of it happens from the damage that can happen to the affected organs. There are medications that can help reduce the severity of flare-ups, which will obviously help prevent severe organ damage. And while we don't have a cure for it, for many people, it will actually sometimes just go away on its own. So for David, he certainly did his best to stay healthy and active, which in itself is thought to also help reduce the flare-ups. Naturally, 
When David fell extremely ill in June of 2020, he headed to the university hospital's Plymouth NHS Trust. And this wasn't just a bad flu. David had reached the point of having septic-type symptoms, despite having been on antibiotics. If you've listened to previous episodes, namely the Carol Proto case, you're familiar with how quickly sepsis can become life-threatening. But after a thorough investigation into his symptoms and his complaints of breathing difficulties and a persistent cough, the hospital found that he had an abscess in his right lung. Now, this was actually a major finding. If you're not familiar with abscesses, They are a collection of pus and other fluids, usually caused by some form of infection. They can grow quite large, and they are at risk of rupturing. If they rupture, it can give the infection a platform to be able to start spreading throughout your body. Think of it like your best friend finds out her husband cheated on her. Now, a dark scenario, I know, but once that cat is out of the bag, the distrust and hurt seeps into every area of her life and relationship and is toxic. You can't put the secret back in the bag and the damage just spreads like wildfire. Ultimately, it leads to the end of the relationship. Now, the risk of an abscess isn't just if it bursts, because if it grows large enough, the infection can seep into the surrounding tissues and ultimately make its way into the blood becoming sepsis. So, in this case, for our analogy, I suppose it'd be more like if your best friend just suspected her husband cheated. There is no cat-out-of-the-bag moment, but the toxicity is still the same. She no longer trusts him and becomes paranoid, which also ultimately will spread through all aspects of the relationship. It's kind of just as toxic either way. In David's case, the hospital ended up doing a pneumonectomy. Like, literally, they removed the entire right lung. I found this really interesting I don't have any of the medical records from this case to know what the size of the abscess was or the condition of the lung in general, but I found it peculiar that they so quickly opted to go straight to a pneumonectomy. I mean, it's the whole damn lung. 
as a side note, if they remove just a lobe of the lung, it's called a lobectomy. People can live with only one lung, but it's certainly not an ideal situation if it can be avoided. Over time, the remaining lung will increase its capacity and the diaphragm will actually shift to help fill up the empty space in the chest. Terrifyingly, the first pneumonectomy was successfully completed all the way back in 1895. I mean, this is around the time that electricity was first becoming mainstream accessible. And here we have a dude cutting out an entire lung from a living patient. Science is just so crazy sometimes. Anyway, I'm getting really sidetracked here. After the lung was removed, it was sent to pathology to study the tissue. The particular pathologist who examined the sample noted in her report that she had identified signs of granulotomous inflammation, which would be in line with his previous sarcoidosis diagnosis. She also noted that due to the high levels of inflammation, it was extremely difficult to examine the samples, but that based on the clinical history of the patient, David, she felt confident that it was sarcoidosis and not any form of a malignant infection or disease. Recovery after having a lung removed is certainly not a walk in the park, but David's recovery was more difficult than expected. He continued to have bothersome symptoms through the fall and winter of 2020 and had seemed to hit a wall in his progress. By January of 2021, he ended up visiting a different hospital, the Royal Brompton Hospital in London, which is quite a journey from the Plymouth area. I'm not sure what took him all the way to London, but he met with a doctor there who went over his medical history and symptoms. A consultant pathologist at the London hospital ended up reaching out to the Dareford Hospital over concerns of David's condition, which they referred to as a change in his clinical status and requested a reassessment and second opinion of the original tissue sample that had been removed seven months prior. And that reassessment changed everything. David was diagnosed with high-grade 
B-cell lymphoma. This is an aggressive type of non-Hodgkin lymphoma. It's worth noting that there are several subcategories of B-cell lymphoma, and I'm not 100% certain in David's case, but my assumption would be diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. This is the most common type of non-Hodgkin lymphoma and is one of the more aggressive types, or medically high-grade. According to Healthline, overall, the five-year relative survival rate for non-Hodgkin's lymphoma is 73%. So basically, three out of four people with the disease are still alive after five years. Cancer.org backs this up, and for diffuse large B-cell, it lists the five-year survival for a localized early-stage diagnosis at 73%, though that drops to only 57% once you have distant sites present or when the cancer has metastasized in later stages of the disease. But none of these statistics would matter to David. He began treatment immediately, but he passed away on March 6th, 2021, only a month after his diagnosis. There was an inquest launched to try and understand how David had been so gravely misdiagnosed. The original pathologist who made the diagnosis of sarcoidosis gave an alarming statement that really highlights the risk of understaffing in the medical field. She said that upon examining the sample, which was difficult to make a diagnostic decision on, that she did not seek a second opinion because she feared her coworker was too overworked. She said the only colleague who was available to provide a second opinion had recently moved to part-time hours and had work, quote, up to the ceiling, end quote. She didn't want to burden them with additional workload, so even though she couldn't make a definitive decision from the sample alone, she relied on the previous medical history to rule out cancer. There is a saying in medicine that goes something like, if you hear hoofbeats, think horses, not zebras. Or zebras, I suppose. Meaning, look to the most likely diagnosis. With David's history, sarcoidosis certainly seemed like horse hooves. The inquest ultimately found 
that staffing issues and protocols contributed to the misdiagnosis, and several recommendations were made to the hospital to improve staffing, improve the ease of pathologists being able to request second opinions, and various other tracking and record-keeping improvements. But that change is too late for David. I'll leave you with the words of his wife, Sarah. Quote, He was such a fantastic husband and dad to our boys, and to this day, I still feel myself going to speak to him and then realizing he's not here anymore. We all miss him every single day. Since he died, I feel like time has stood still for me. He was my soulmate, and I really can't imagine the rest of my life without him. I know nothing will ever bring him back, and I know reliving it all at the inquest will be tough, but I hope that it will at least provide us with the answers we need. End quote. While the changes implemented were too late for David, I hope that, if anything, it will spare lives in the future. I'm sure David and his family would hope for the same. For sources and additional show notes, follow the link in the episode summary to our website. If you'd like to see pictures related to the episodes and the Miss Medical Podcast, you can find us on Instagram as Miss Medical Podcast. If you love Miss Medical and want to support the show, find us on Patreon where you can officially join the intern team. All episodes are written by myself and aim to be as factually accurate as possible. Music is an original composition recorded and produced by Jason Chamberlain. And of course, make sure you follow the podcast on your chosen platform so you never miss an episode.